Welcome to the Second Reading Podcast from the University of Texas at Austin. The Republicans were in the Democratic Party because there was only one party. So I tell people on a regular basis, there is still a land of opportunity in America. It's called Texas. The problem is these departures from the Constitution, they have become the norm. At what point must a female senator raise her hand or her voice to be recognized over the male colleagues in the room? And welcome back to the Second Reading Podcast. I'm Jim Henson, director of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. Uh, Extremely happy today uh, to be joined by two excellent guests, a frequent, very frequent guest, Josh Blank, research director of the Texas Politics Project. Good mid-morning, Josh. Good morning. And uh, especially happy to have Ross Ramsey. Um, I'm not sure how to describe you now. What I have is veteran political journalist and co-founder of the Texas Tribune, now enjoying perhaps either retirement or a gap year. I can't quite tell. Right now it's a gap year. (laughs) So far it's just a gap two months, but you know. So Ross uh, recently stepped down to great accolades as executive editor and as I've said, one of the founders of the Texas Tribune and uh, really happy that you said yes to coming today because- you know, you didn't have to. Josh works I here. do. I have to be. I'm required. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Wait, I'm not getting paid? Josh is getting paid. Um, well, Josh will take care of that. Um, <laughs> this was optional for you, so uh, we really uh, appreciate it. Now, we've invited uh, uh, Ross in to talk today because we have a new uh, UT Texas Politics Project poll that that we released this morning, or as we record on Wednesday in the, in the middle of the morning. Um Polls, you know, tons of policy stuff, election returns, lots of mood items. Um, And this, you know, we can talk about this. This is one of those polls that I think really hangs together. It's it's of the moment. You know, I mean, it really does capture a moment in time. Sometimes you look at these things and, you know, I should mention, this is the 50th poll that we've done as part of the UT project. Wow. Um, A lot of polls. Between 35 and 40 that you Ross was directly involved in. So that's another good reason to have you today. But, you know, as we've talked about these polls over the last, you know, 14 years, um, you know, sometimes you kind of go, well, I don't, you know, I don't know, there's a bunch of mishmash or this is going on and that's going on. This one feels like there's a, a definite mood and, and a definite thing going on. And we can uh, sort of uh, uh, dig some of that out and maybe, maybe you guys do or don't feel the same way. Um, Let's start where we often do when we've laughed about this. And I, I should mention that we often have Darren Shaw, co-director and co-founder of The Poll, uh, on these podcasts. Darren is uh, on vacation somewhere in the West. I don't want to – he may be in an undisclosed location, so I don't want to see or have people be able to track him down on some of these results. Um, <laughs> but um, so uh, that's why Darren is not here today. So, but let's start at least briefly with the election stuff before we get to the policy stuff. So, so, Josh, why don't you start us off and give us kind of an overview of the main trial ballots and the election stuff? Yeah, sure. So, what we found in, in the June poll was, you know, top of the ticket, Greg Abbott's a leading Beto O'Rourke among registered voters. We say registered voters here. So, four months out from the election, forty-five percent to thirty-nine percent. That is definitely a tightening. In our poll, or a narrowing, you know, which is a lot of people are kind of focused on right now. In February, Abbott had a 10-point lead, 47-37. In April polling, he had a 9-point lead, 48-37. And now we're at 6, 45-39. Now, these are the sort of things I think, you know, in the old days when we were doing three polls a year, I'd be, you know, we'd be less inclined to say, yeah, this looks like something going on because of the distance between the polls. But as we kind of watch it go along, it sort of, it it looks right. And the main reason I would say is if you look at the internals, O'Rourke is increasing his support among Democrats, Right. Uh, you know, Greg Abbott is losing some support among independents. That could be partially a reflection of the moment and some of the policies we'll talk about. Right. And we're seeing a narrowing in the suburbs, which is kind of something we'd expect because that's where we think a lot of the competition is going to take place. So what we say is the internals hang together when we look at sort of the right. tightening in ways that I think make sense. And we've talked about independence in this race a bit, you know, yeah. in the last year. Yeah, we can we can certainly go back to that. So let's should we hit a couple of the other yeah, races yeah, first? Yeah, yeah let's, okay. Let's just hit the other ones. Okay, so you know Dan Patrick finds himself in a slightly more comfortable position. This is the first uh, in the series that we're polling on the lieutenant governors and the attorney generals uh, general election races. So we don't have anything to compare it to yet. But he had a comfortable twelve point lead over Mike Collier, thirty eight to twenty six. Uh, the AG race is unsurprisingly a little bit tighter. Uh, Ken Paxson has an eight-point lead over Rochelle Garza, 37% to 29%. I think that's sort of something that, again, makes sense in the context of 
you know, Ken Paxton's, you know, uh, you know, long turn in the spotlight. And I think Rochelle Garza is kind of positioning the moment around abortion rights and, and all that kind of stuff. But but still, when we didn't we didn't do our, our the fave unfave for all the candidates this time as we did during the primaries. But Rochelle Garza is still not widely known. Almost certainly not. I mean, the thing the, the main the main <laughs> sort of the main sort of differentiating point, I think, that we should just sort of point out here is, you know, was only 10 percent of registered voters said that they didn't have an opinion or hadn't thought enough about the governor's race to offer an opinion. It was about a quarter of voters in both the attorney general's race and the lieutenant governor's race. And we know from our polling that was done just in just recently that it's very unlikely that even half the electorate has an opinion of who Rochelle Garza is at this point, just to be that's, fair. That's yeah. more of Ken Paxton versus not Ken Paxton. That's a hundred percent more of Ken Paxton's right. with a little dash of ticket. Republican versus Democrat. A little yeah. dash, yes, exactly. Yeah. Um so Ross, you know, you've seen a lot of these election polls and you've seen a lot of races in Texas. Anything sticking out to you on this? No, I mean, the Republicans are pretty persistent. And if you go all the way down to the generic races for Congress and for the legislature, you see, you know, numbers that sort of fit in this in this general scheme. The Republicans are six to 12 points ahead um, and we're, you know, several months out. One of the things I did look at, you know, we haven't quite got to it yet, but when you look at favorable, unfavorable ratings for people like Greg Abbott and Dan Patrick in the June polls of election years going back, since you've done so many polls, you can go back and see that there's often this sort of moment when their numbers get a little shaky. It's like the voters are locked in. I'm for these incumbents, and then we get to about a half year out from an election, and they go, well, let's go shopping a little bit. And they generally, in Texas in the last 20 years, certainly have come home. You know, a couple of exceptions, but they've come home. I don't know what will happen this time, but you're clearly, if you're looking at their the the shifts in their numbers of favorable, unfavorable, you know, there's some reconsideration of the incumbents. And even with that, they maintain their leads, it looks like. Yeah, that's like a direct political science kind of observation, actually, which they call like enlightened partisanship. And the idea is if you're listening to this podcast, like, you, you know, your partisanship is accessible to you. It might even be like, you know, something it's that's pretty like close to the surface. Core, core identity. Yeah. But I think, you know, there's something that, I, you know, a stat that's been going around a lot lately, lately that I think kind of is a good example, which is, you know, if you look at political Twitter a lot and think, oh, my God, this is the world. It's like, yeah, except like 80 percent of adults have never tweeted in their lives. Right. And similarly, you know, most people you know, are kind of going around dealing with other stuff, you know, their allegiance to like their football team or, you know, their college alma mater might be higher than their party. But then as the summer kind of rolls on and we start to get into campaign seasons, part of what they say is like, this is the job of the campaigns to remind people like, oh, you're a Republican because of this. Right. These are the things we agree on. And these are the things you don't agree with Democrats on and vice versa. So you start to see that kind of that kind of thing happen. And I think, you know, what the only thing that I think is interesting in this moment is Republicans always have a certain advantage at that in this state because of their monopoly on all the offices. Abbott can go and have a press conference and remind you, right? Right. It's a lot harder for O'Rourke, which is why I think part of what you're seeing again in this poll, to the extent that O'Rourke is kind of coming, you know, back into the picture a little bit more is the Democrats. Right. The people that he's kind of competing for who he might have, you know, a chance with are starting to pay a little bit more attention, but it's still, still a long ways. Well, and the other thing I would note here is that, you know, to some extent over the last two or three months, events have conspired against incumbents. You know, that's if, if one way to put it. Well, if you talk about if you talk about inflation, sure it feels that way to them. Well, <laughs> yes. I'm sure it does. I mean, if you talk about inflation, you can see the deterioration of support for mm-hmm. both Republicans and Democrats. If you're in office, you're you know you were there and you're to blame. And as the you know there were there were pretty you know interesting similarities between what happened to like a Greg Abbott and to a Joe Biden. And as as voters became increasingly concerned about the economy, about um, inflation, mm-hmm. about other things like that, you know, you can see them kind of, you know, looking over the tops of their glasses at the incumbents, and and you see it in their numbers. Well, well, I'm sorry, I just want to, you know, it's really interesting because I mean, we can go into the mood stuff because I think that's a big, yeah, big let's part do that. of this. I mean, I think that's I where just, I was going to go. That's I just want to jump. I mean, we can come back to this, but we have a, you know, uh, an issue approval battery for Biden and Abbott, and what's really interesting to me is that you know, Abbott's overall approval rating on the economy. 
okay. I mean, none of, nobody's approval ratings are great. Let's just say that right now. I mean, the best you can kind of hope for is ambivalence here for, right. for the most we're part. We're great on the curve here. Yeah. yeah, Biden is net negative on all issues, and Abbott is only barely net positive on, I think, two or three. On two or three. And the thing is, is one of the, his better issues is the economy, but one of his worst issues is inflation and prices. Right. And so, I mean, the whole kind of, you know, definitionally how, how you know, how that gets mobilized, and this sort of gets to another set of results, you know, which I think we should I guess we'll go to now, which is the overall mood, which is remarkably, remarkably poor. And it's like, we're yeah, I mean, I mean, I think we've, we've sort of just we've backed into this whole sense of like, what is unifying in this poll? And it is, you know, job approval ratings for anybody that's elected to anything is down some much more than others, which we'll touch on. But also the the you know, what we have thought of as our general mood indicators are just, you know, for this poll, again, you know, after 14 years, historically negative. I mean, right. Texas wrong track is 59, right track 31, wrong track 59 for the state. Um, 59, highest negative number we've seen in, in our polling. Um, but to balance that, to your point, Ross, the U.S. right track wrong direction is even worse. Yeah. 16 right, 76 wrong direction. Um, national economy... Asking people whether the national economy is better or worse than a year ago, 73% say that it's worse. Texas economy, well more than half, 58% say it's worse. People's home economic situation, 53% say it's worse than it was a year ago, and on and on. And right. just and the thing is, is that, you know, just as just to add to this, there's something kind of important here, which is, you know, these are also big upticks since April. I mean, this isn't as though this was like, you know, we've been kind of, I mean, as you said, you know, sometimes you go, you do a million of these polls and sometimes, you know, I mean, we're kind of talking, you know, you're in the situation of like, no, 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 this is interesting. Like, really? Because it didn't change. And people like, people like Ross look at me like, uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> sure. But in this case, we're talking, I mean, just for example, you know, the country wrong track number, 76%, that's up 10 points over April. I mean, this yeah. is not well, a long this is, period. This is where I was going, you know, to, to a, I mean, it's a, it's a, External factor, you know, the news has been terrible. Mm -hmm. And all of the things that, you know, the atmosphere has soured considerably in the last 10 or 12 weeks, you know, since that April poll uh, came back in. And you can see it in these numbers. And you can see it not only in yeah. the concerns that they have, their most important issues, but certainly in how they're feeling about all these incumbents. Well, back in August, you, Ross, you and I were, were I, I can't remember who, I think I was calling the outlook dour and you were calling it sour. And that's when the Texas track was at 52 wrong track. Right, which was that point was a record, just <laughs> right. as an aside. I mean, right. that was a record then. Um, so, I mean, I think the question then becomes, you know, how much does, you know, how does, you know, a national environment and mood and economy uh, that is sort of anti-Big D Democrat, does it become anti-incumbent? At some point, is sort of the question. I mean, if you keep going in this direction, at some point, it's hard to be sitting there at the top of the tick and say, I mean, in Abbott's case, you know, Joe Biden has been in office for eighteen months. Parentheses, I've been in office for ninety, hmm. and somehow, you know, everything that's going on in Texas is his fault. You know, when you take that and you add it to some of these other sort of big, big, high-profile incidents and sort of, you know, I think politics and policies around abortion and guns and these sort of other things that are kind of hard for people to avoid, even the people who aren't necessarily walking around with their partisanship on their sleeve, it does make you wonder whether Texas voters are going to come into the fall looking at things a little bit differently than we've normally expected them to. I think all the boats could sink, but I think the Democratic boats get swamped first. Yeah. You know, and, and the best thing going for the Republicans is that they're the least disliked party. Right. But everybody's sort of disliked. Yeah, I mean, there's a real just, you know, the people in charge are not doing a good job kind of yeah. sense here. Well, and, and, and not just the this, people, the people and the institutions. I mean, part of this, you know, this is the difference between, you know, politics is emotional and government's logical, right? And and if you look at this and you say, you know, to what extent is are Joe Biden or Greg Abbott directly responsible for inflation? Well, it's a little bit mixed, you know. I mean, you know, the easy example of this is, you know, everybody gets mad at incumbent presidents when gasoline prices go up. If incumbent presidents really controlled gasoline prices, gasoline prices would never go up. <laughs> I mean, you know, this is this is right, why would you do this? Soon, why would you do that? <laughs> well, I wouldn't, you know. Um, but they but they do, you know, this is the this is the job for chief executives is that you're the person on the seat in the dunking booth and when it's time to to throw, you know, you're the one who's going to get wet. Yeah, sure. 
But I guess the question becomes, does that ever happen in Texas? Because Which, well, which executive? Well, exactly. Which, <laughs> well, right. you know, which executive? And I think that's sort of, I mean, I think that's kind of what the test is. I mean, I think, you know, again, look, I think Republicans in the state are incredibly well insulated for a number of reasons, you know, at the yeah. lower level from because of redistricting. Uh, at you know at the top level one because of an advantage in the number of voters in the state who turn out right. regularly so let's just admit you know that's that's a fact right and the advantages of incumbency and the resources of incumbency and, is the advantage know. of having a 1200 mile border with Mexico which as much as it is a you know is a a perpetual policy problem for Texas it's also a political opportunity that you know allows that the Republicans yeah advantage. yeah well you know I, I guess the you know does it ever happen that that's what was so interesting about 2018. Wasn't that it happened, but it you know particularly at the Ted Cruz level, it almost happened. Right, he got splashed, um, and 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 it raised the possibility of wow, that could happen. I you know I think the odds of it this time appear to be pretty low. Yeah, I agree. I mean, to me, what I think is you know when you look and kind of go back to the polling numbers. I mean, there's been a lot. Of, there's been a number of there's more a, fr a higher frequency of, of trial ballots are coming out now in Texas, and I think you know there's a little bit of a of a tendency to sort of overinterpret you know each one as somehow some kind of major new like data point when really they're painting a broad picture, snapshots in time, whatever. But you kind of look at it and you say, you know, if we were talking in 2014 or 2016 about the idea that, well, you know, the Democratic candidate for governor is going to be about a five, six point deficit in, in the summer with the Republican candidate, you know who would have loved that? Wendy Davis would have loved that. Right. Like, you know, Lupe Valdez would have loved that. I mean, the, I mean, the fact is, is that, you know, this is not a bad place for Democrats to be. And then the question becomes to my mind, you know, in addition to sort of the campaigns, plus the national environment, plus the Texas environment, does that end up, you know, does Abbott end up overperforming that and kind of pushing that number out a little bit more towards, you know, eight or 10 or, or is it more like, you know, two three or five. three, three or five, he, you he know. He may need more of that $50 million than he thought he did. Yeah, well, I, but I think that big ad buy was to some extent. I mean, look, they have polling numbers. I mean, it's some something of a reflection of the fact that this well, is not going to be easy. It, you know, let's let's circle back on that on this environmental question, but let's look at a couple of the you know the marquee issues that are right now. I think feeding into this overall environment um, in a couple of different ways. So, you know, let's start with abortion. And we should, you know, remind, you know, anybody listening. So the poll came out of the field. The day, the day of the Dobbs the, decision. The, the Dobbs uh, decision overturning Roe v. Wade was announced. So it's not reflected here. So it's not reflected here. Which actually I say, just for quick, that's good. Well, I mean, just for, I mean, from my perspective, that's no, good. I was going to go there. Okay, um, go ahead. You go ahead. You know, go I mean, ahead. just, Sorry. you know, I mean, it does give us a, a good, robust right on the evening of Roe, right. of Roe right. being overturned. And it was in the field. The full field was after the leak. Yes. Yes. So the possibility of Dobbs was out there, and and it was really just a question. Right. Of I mean, look, how I much think like the, you know, how much like the leak is the final decision going to be? Yeah. I mean, I think there's two things going on with this, and and Josh may want to add to this, but I, you know, two conditions here is people say, well, you know, you were in before the decision, and you know, not to be defensive, although it's going to sound that way no matter what, but there are two things that we've seen. One is just the remarkable durability of attitudes on abortion across, you know, a decade or more of the, the polling that we've done. Um, you know, for people that are listening, if you go and you look at our at our summary sheet, you know, we've got trend data in the summary document and all the graphics there. And there's just not much shifting in people. This is this is something that people, you know, as Josh have thought about. Or and Darren's everybody kind of says this, I guess. But people thought about this. To me. There's not a ton of there's not a ton of people that go, oh, abortion. I've really thought about that lately um, as, as an attitude. Um, and then the other, you know, is um, you know the, the the piece that you raised, Ross, which is that abortion was a pretty live issue, and there was a lot of anticipation of the Supreme Court decision. And a lot of anticipation of what it was going to be. Now, we didn't know that that leaked draft was going to be necessarily the final decision, right. but it telegraphed what was happening. Yeah, and fundamentally, clearly. the situation on the ground in Texas has not shifted overwhelmingly. I'm saying, you know, it has shifted dramatically in some in some senses, but in terms of the legal landscape for obtaining a legal abortion in Texas, I mean, really, we the, the state went from very little access to no access. Right. And so, I mean, ultimately, I mean, a lot of that I mirrors mean, to your point, too. Like, we had a large discussion around abortion during the legislative session and the special sessions and moving on. So, I mean, this is this has and, been and in the clinics air. clinics closing. I mean, we were already uh, – there was already a lot of media coverage and a lot of people in the situation experiencing the impact of, 
you know, access to abortion in the state being severely cut back. And just delay it. I mean, in, in the run out to this. But so what, yeah, talk well, I mean, a little just, bit of then about well, what we got. And there's a reason why, just to make a point here, it's kind of we talk about sometimes it's like, well, if you find a result and it's 90-10 and people say, well, what about the subgroups? It's like, yeah, they're mostly about 90-10 because you can't really have a bunch of jumping around, right? And it's kind of, I mean, I think, you know, abortion, again, at the, at the top level, I mean, there's a certain aspect of that, which is that, you know, what we found in the, this most recent survey is that, you know, asked across sort of a very, very generic set of circumstances. And Jim spoke, I think, in a previous podcast recently about the problems with this question, but it does provide us with a certain amount of, uh, of, of you know, time series here. Only 15% of Texans said that abortion should never be permitted. And this is very consistent. That includes 23% of Republicans, also very consistent. That, that number may be just slightly high, actually, on the overall time series. Um, then we asked basically about the uh, about the trigger law in Texas. And what we found is that only 37% of Texans supported the trigger law that automatically abandons abortion in the state if the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade. 54% oppose it. We've asked this five times between April of last year and now. We've had at least 53% opposition each time, no more than 37% support. This time, what we did to kind of open this up a little bit more is we took a set of questions that we've asked before about circumstances in which people think that women should or should not be able to access an abortion ranging from, you know, uh, a threat to their health, a serious, you know, health problem, rape, incest, uh, you know, the presence of a birth defect, you know, basically not having enough income, so, so et cetera, et cetera. We've asked this question before basically as a, as a binary, yes, no. And what we tend to find is, that, you know, even the people who say never still allow for abortion in the case, especially of rape, incest, and sort of threat to the danger of the mother. What we did this time was we took something to the Roe framework in a sense and said, okay, here are these circumstances. Should a woman never be able to access an abortion in that circumstance? And then we said six weeks, 12 weeks, right. 24 weeks, 36 weeks, any time during the pregnancy, which really kind of layers it. Instead in so of the whole package, you look at it one thing at a time. Right. I mean, you know, what we were really after here in this speaks to, you know, at least my, and I think others, but my, my frustration especially um, with the existing question is we decomposed both the time frame mm -hmm. and the conditions under which a woman might seek an abortion, the context, right. and broke that down in a much more, I think, direct and clear way and, and had people choose an option, you know, express attitudes within both of those in a matrix. Right. And so what you do is then what you find is when you say, okay, 37% of people support the trigger law, no more than 36% of Texans, which I would say statistically same thing, 36, 37 is fine. No more than 36% of Texans would in any of the circumstances completely prohibit abortion. And it ranged between 8% in the case of health endangerment would say, you know, have too bad. And 36% at the high end, which is basically you either have sort of an unmarried person who just doesn't want to like form a family at that point, or you have a married person who doesn't want to expand their family at that point. And those are sort right. of the two least popular things. But even those, that's where you get to the, the top end, which is 36%. So, you know, the long and short of this is that as, as Texas basically now has no access to legal abortion, save for the case of a serious bodily injury or death to the mother, the reality is, is that polling in Texas consistently showed, even up to the moment of the overturning of Roe v. Wade, that the vast, vast majority of Texans support access to legal abortion, at least in some circumstances and at least at some point in time. And so this is make, I mean, to me, like this creates such political exposure really for both sides, right? I mean, on the one hand, you've got, you know, Republicans are going to come into a legislative session where the energy, at least from their partisans, is going to be, okay, well, now how do we enforce this thing? Right. When the reality is, is the vast, vast majority of Texans are saying, yeah, but like, shouldn't you be creating some more exceptions like for, for rape? I mean, you know, for example, like statutory rape. And There's some stuff out there that's going to be pretty ugly. Yeah the, yeah, the lack of support in this poll for, you know, banning abortion, even in instances of rape or incest, I think is very telling and really crystallizes, I think, a big, a big problem approximately for Republicans nationally and perhaps in the state. For the reasons you're talking about, um, but also in the broader sense, it's like if you have numbers like this, and this is not the first time we've seen numbers like right. this. If you're in charge of government, what are you doing? Well, and there's <laughs> I mean, if you're the Supreme Court, you get to do whatever you want, but that doesn't really answer the question. Well, if you're a legislator, and this, and if you're now operating in the environment that the Supreme Court has now created, where it's up to you as a state legislator to sort this out. Right. Well, the Supremes didn't do policy; they did law. Right. Right. And and you know you can you know we could argue that over whiskey, yeah. but and that'd be fun. But um, 
But it's now down to the legislatures to do policy. And you do all of these numbers that you're talking about, and you look at all of these results line by line. What about this situation, this situation, this situation? And you get a set of answers. And then you ask the question in the poll, do you support or oppose automatically banning all abortions if the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade? And 37% say, sure. And now if you're a legislator, you look at that and say, well, that's not what you said over here. And I mean, there's a there's a lot of sand in this. Well, see, I, this is the thing. I think we've been dealing with this and I've been dealing with this. And I don't I don't actually see as, as much sand. I think the reality is, is that, you know, I think what we found and I talked I mean, we talked about this previously. And I'll just make this point again. I mean, there's something actually about the Roe v. Wade framework that really I mean, you know, we can say like, oh, this is just, you know, judges making law and not policy. Right. But actually, the framework of Roe v. Wade really matches public opinion in a in a pretty good way, which is to say, look, within within a reasonable amount of time within the within, you know, gestational age. Right. We're talking there is a pretty wide appetite to allow people to kind of make a choice based on based on their circumstances. You get a little further out, there's a lot less of an appetite for it. In terms of the range of, you know, circumstances and choices, what you find is, you know, in sort of the in the sort of classical, you know, again, rape, incest life, there's almost uniform, yeah, you, you know, you should have it be able to access this. Even on the ones that are more, I would say, choicey, right, if you will. There's still a lot of, you know, I think openness to a certain amount of access within a certain time period. And that's why actually, you know, the whole kind of first trimester framework works pretty well because it allows for the fact that you can be someone who says, yeah, I'm pro-life. I oppose banning abortion in all circumstances, you know, let's say ab- banning abortion in Texas. We say, oh, yeah, OK. What about when the when the mother's life is in danger? It's like, oh, well, yeah, sure. No, you should be able to access it. It's like, well, what if she was right? Well, yeah, I mean, obviously. And then you kind of get to like birth defect. And then, well, it depends on the person, depends on a number of factors. Yeah. And so that's what I, I don't think that this is actually inconsistent. I think what it is is that when you come right down to it, when when the rhetoric of like, you know, I'm either pro-life on the one hand or pro-choice on the other, you know, we want to end abortion on the one hand or, you know, unfettered access on the other. When that meets when that rubber meets the policy road, it becomes a lot yeah. more complicated. And just one other piece of this, this is why Democrats also face a certain amount of exposure here. You know, in the in the left-leaning states in New York and California or wherever, where they're gonna start passing, you know, probably Pretty, ex, you know, honestly, they're going to be start discussing a pretty expansive right to abortion access that, you know, if the Democrats are consistent, will probably go far beyond where public opinion is comfortable in most places. And that becomes the poster child of, right. the, of the sort of the resistance to this, I think, in states like Texas. And then we see how that kind of gets. Mixed yeah, I mean, into the I, system. You know, I think, you know, kind of simply put, I mean, there's, you know, context matters a lot. And, you know, there are reasons that, you know, on both sides that as matters of campaign discussion or political discourse, you boil things down to either, you know, it's my choice or, oh, they want abortion on demand. Right. Right. <laughs> well, and if and, you well, know, neither and, of those, and, and, right, and you can yeah. kind of see that in all of these numbers, including even the more nuanced read. Yeah, right? I mean, the, and the discussion it seems in elite democratic circles right now are very much about like, so do we want like policies that'll win or policies that'll make our coalition happy? And they don't really have an answer, so it's not clear. That, I mean, even well, as, a number of in a number of places, a number, yeah. well, a number of places. I mean, this place, I think it's it's yeah. particular. I mean, there's a whole argument about the discussion. I mean, you know, in the question, we use the word "woman." We talked about a person, you know, and ultimately, this is a big debate going on in democratic politics right now about how to talk about this. Even now, again, it's early. There's a lot of time, again, I think, yeah. for everybody to message these things out. But it just, you know, it just lays out the fact that you know we're in uncharted territory in terms of how much exposure there is. But on balance. A lot more exposure for Republicans and Democrats. There's an analog there for John Cornyn. <laughs> well, yeah, let's, let's you know. Let's. Well, let's let's talk about John Cornyn. But to get to John Cornyn, let's talk about guns because I think we have right. to go through guns to get to John Cornyn. Right. So you know, we were in the field, you know, a couple of weeks after about three weeks, yeah, I guess, weeks. after the Uvalde shootings, and. During a period, I think, when the discussion of this, uh, of what happened in Uvalde was very great, you know, talking again, unifying theme in the poll was very, was a very dark discussion because it was becoming clear that the response had been a poor response and much of the political response, you know, to my mind, and and this is, was a good time for you to be sort of out of the game, Ross. I mean, I, (laughs) you know, I went, sat through one of those Senate hearings and watched a lot of them. And it was dispiriting to watch the political class try to, quote unquote, I'm doing air quotes here in the studio, try to handle and respond to the issue. 
Right. Because there was a lot of just casting about for blame and, you know, in terms of who was going to have to take responsibility and a lot of redirection based on the poli- on partisan politics and, you know, bending over backwards to not talk about access to guns in, in a way that I... I don't see performative how just, irresponsibility. I just don't see how you could not see that as just, yeah. you know, the the most intellectually dishonest approach to this that one could possibly imagine. Um, that said, you know, guns, you know, in some ways have looked a little like abortion in the fixedness, in the fixed quality of the attitude. So with a little more movement, right? Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, there's, there's a couple ways that we think about this and sort of to be, you know, fair, I think the way to think about this is in terms of, you know, gun violence on the one hand and then sort of gun safety slash gun control on the other and attitudes towards those things because they're not the same thing, right? So attitude towards guns, attitude towards gun violence, and then attitudes towards gun safety or gun control proposals are kind of three – they're related but separate buckets, right? And so the first thing is we repeated a question that we've asked uh, two times before in the wake of other mass shootings in Texas in 2015 and 2017 about sort of what people think are, are the – the most important factors leading to these mass shootings. And the reason we do this, I think, that's important is, first and foremost, you know, I think we can acknowledge right now, there's almost no chance of significant movement on, like, gun control laws in Texas in the near future. So we can just say that as, as, a, as a set piece. And, and gun control writ large. Right. I mean, and so, really almost anything right. that influence, right. it includes access to guns. So we, you know, so generally speaking, you know, we're pretty disinclined to ask about kind of you know, let's say hypotheticals that we haven't asked about in the past. When we say hypotheticals we haven't asked about in the past, it's usually things that have been in the discussion. So a national background check or universal background check has been in the discussion for a while. Red flag laws were raised by the governor, the lieutenant governor at one point in time. So everything that we do ask about on a policy standpoint is not something that like we're just making up. But part of this goes back to the factors. The reason we ask about the factors that people think lead to mass shootings is because it gives us a sense as to where the solutions might come from in the perception of voters is the idea, right? So if it's about guns, then the legislature tells you where the voters think the problem is. Yeah, that means addressing it means dealing with guns. If it's the mental health system, then it means dealing with mental health system. So what we find, of course, is, you know, pretty consistent. Uh, You know, so the you know the plurality of Texans said that current gun control laws or gun laws are the main factor, but it was fifty percent of Democrats who thought this, and six percent of Republicans. Right. Okay. So about one in twenty. I like, right. to, like to do those conversions. For Republicans, it was much more likely to be failures of the mental health system or un, unstable family situations. Twenty-five percent of Republicans said failures of the mental health system. Twenty-one percent said unstable family situations. This is pretty consistent. What we find, and I think, fits with the overall view that we hear about, which is it's about individual failings. You know, it's it's people making bad decisions with their guns, not the guns themselves. Which we've seen historically in these kinds of batteries going back a long time. Two little just side notes on this battery that are worth mentioning. Only seven percent said it was insufficient security or like. The basically at the public buildings. And this is consistent. Very few people think it's because the schools are just easy targets. That's not the reason that people attribute it to it. Also, I should say, you know, the 25% who said current gun control laws does represent a change. Back in 2015, when we asked this for the first time, 13% of Texans said it was current gun control laws. In uh, 2017, it was 21%. This time it's 25%. So there's definitely more uh, voters who are increasingly saying, you know, this might actually have to do with guns. Having said that, you know, the big sort of underlying attitude that really divides this, we ask this question, you know, if more people carried guns, would the U.S. be safer or not, right? And this is sort of the idea. I mean, one of the responses to Uvalde is, well, we need to arm teachers, you know, more, you know, more, you know, resource officers, whatever. Well, the plurality of Texans think that if more people were armed, we'd actually be less safe, 43%. But among Democrats, it's 77%. Among Republicans, it's 16%. Among Republicans, a majority, 57% say more safe. So when you start off with this, I think you got to start here and say, look, when we're responding to a mass shooting in the pro, you know, the sort of proximate thing, partisan responses are very different. Also, partisan attitudes towards guns are very different. Having said that, we ask these policies that we've asked repeatedly, we find in Texas, we find everywhere else. 78% of Texans support universal background checks. 93% of Democrats, 66% of Republicans, 73% of independents, to keep score. Uh, 70% support raising the age to buy a firearm from 18 to 21. Uh, 91% of Democrats, 60% of independents, 56% of Republicans, 66% support a red flag law, 89% of Democrats, 57% of independents, and a plurality, 49% of Republicans. And again, I think some people will say, well, this doesn't make sense. It's, like, it's not consistent. Like, no, it's very consistent, right? If you think that guns make people safe and that safe people with guns make people safer, then a bunch of laws that are there to ensure that, safe pe- that the safe people are the ones with the guns get support is actually – Pretty and consistent. I, and I think that's a fair, you know, I think that's an utterly fair point to make about this. 
Well, you I know, do too. This is, yeah. And this goes to John Cornyn. This is what's interesting right. about this. Is he pretty markedly turned the conversation in Congress to the kinds of things you're talking about that were popular both with Republicans and Democrats and away from the things that were only popular with Democrats. And what you said a minute ago, I don't remember the exact phrase, but, you know, you're representing these people um, in the in the way that they answer these questions. But then when they go to their uh, partisan flag, you know, he was cutting against the grain and it cost him in his numbers. It's like, you know, you're, are you representing what people say they want or are you representing the party they say they belong to? And and I think Cornyn's, the, Cornyn's numbers have always, you know, yeah, been, been kind of dreary, but this is a surprising you know, change. I, you know, I think I used this term somewhere recently, but I think it's utterly fair. I mean, his numbers cratered. Yeah. Real quick, let me just give you these and then we can talk about it. So in April, Cornyn's job approval. Now, just real quick, Cornyn stands out, and we have a piece on this actually on the blog, on the website, which shows how Cornyn's numbers are just so different from other Republicans, yeah. but they oscillate. I mean, it's a good point, which is, you know, he kind of pulls out a public consciousness yeah. and a lot of people don't have an opinion of him. The election comes around, he ramps up the machine as a good incumbent does. Yeah, we talked about this on the yeah. podcast a couple of weeks ago. I mean, it's a classic U.S. Senate strategy for somebody who wants to remain a U.S. senator. So when I say his April numbers, you'll say, those don't sound great. But they're kind of in line. So in April, 32% approved of the job he was doing, 39% disapproved. In June, only 24% approved, 50% disapproved. Now, his disapproval went up among Democrats from 65 to 70, among independents from 39 to 58. That sounds like a lot, but remember, independents are probably, the way that we define them, pure political independents are probably about 10% of the overall electorate. The real noticeable thing here is among Republicans, his approval went down from 53 to 41, and his disapproval doubled from 17% to 34%. And really, the only kind of... Pro- I mean, we can't say, was it the gun debate? Well, we can't say that, social science, put that in quotes. But in terms of proximate causes, what yeah. was available, I mean, I think we can kind of say, yeah. this was probably what did it. I was talking to a tr- Texas Tribune <laughs> reporter yesterday, or last night in advance of this and was saying, and she was saying, well, you know, is this, this is because of guns, right? And I'm like... You did a good job. <laughs> well, probably. <laughs> Perhaps. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You know, it's... It certainly seems the most available explanation, (laughs) shall we say. Um, So so your point about this, Ross. Well, it's just one of those things where you look at the, you know, if you were a, you know, if you were a non-politically tuned policy person, you would look at these things and say, Cornyn's doing a pretty good job of following the numbers here. And But if you're politically tuned, it was clearly – discordant at best. Well, I, you know? I think Josh said as you were going through those numbers, I mean, his numbers went down um, in every group. Right. <laughs> right. So, just, you know. Just, you know, they, you know, for their various reasons, which is yeah. why you're not, why your reply to that trib reporter was right. I mean, it's just sort of like probably. Um, but, you know, there's a lot of other stuff here. You know, well, what, are you, what you know, are you doing talking to Murphy? What are you doing talking, what are you doing working with well, those guys? Well, yeah, you know? I mean, I, I, I'm going to, you know, one of the things that we say all the time uh, is, you know, don't over, you know, the common thing is over-interpreting poll data. I'm about to do that. Okay, get ready, everybody. <laughs> Buckle up. But I, you know, but I think I can kind of, I mean, to me, I mean, it's not too much of an over-interpretation of the data to look at what happens with Cornyn in connection, in all likelihood, with guns and see a real kind of telling moment for where the what's wrong with politics right now to some degree. At least one of of the things. I mean, here's a guy who takes a real institutional strategy. I mean, he played this in the way that, you know, a member of Congress and in particular Senate, we would expect to play. He looked to see what he could get across, felt like there was a public demand to do something. And look, he got criticized for not doing enough. And I am amenable to that criticism. Right. um, For reasons I'll say in a minute. Um, but, you know, this is like an institutional guy, and he just got pilloried for it. Now, look, you can criticize him that he did this, he took the hits, because this is about his ambition to be leader. I would say Senate leader, right. you know, to succeed Mitch McConnell, or uh, Republican leader in the Senate. Um, but I would also argue that, you know, if you're going to take a hit on this anyway, right. why not exercise a little bit more leadership? And be a little less risky and and push it a little harder. Now, well, I, I he, also, he would say, you know, go find yeah, me the votes, that's dude. What I was thinking. Yeah. Right, find me the votes, dude, and you know, and that utterly fair. Well, as a matter of politics inside Congress, 
he did exactly what you know you would want a leader to incentives. do. I mean, I mean, <laughs> yeah, if it, you right. he did what you know the other members would want a leader to do, he was the one who caught all the javelins that were yeah. coming in, and he got a bill out of there that virtually you know I mean passed the Senate with very few no's and yeah. and and made it safe for all the other people to vote. That's what you do if you're a speaker or a leader or something like right. that. You you know. So it probably played pretty well for him. He's, you know, he's got the advantage of not being on the ballot this year. Yeah, and and for for a couple of years still. Right. So, you know, I mean, and in that sense, we talked about this in the last podcast, or the podcast we talked about Cornyn a couple of weeks ago. You know, that's a classic U.S. I mean, that's like how a U.S. senator's job description, you know, it's, right. it's the, the, the design. If he, was on, right. if, he was, if he was on the 2022 ballot, he would not have been in the lead position on yeah, that. Right. Let's just, right. I mean, And like, nobody would have expected him Nobody to. would have expected it. And for way. all the hit he took in this poll, and I presume other polls too, um, he played, you know, he's on the right part of the calendar and he played the inside game very well. The outside game took a but, little bit of a hit, but he's but got time to recover. But having said that, I mean, I, you know, I mean, I, I, I follow up on Jim's point. I mean, I think it does speak to sort of the dysfunction and, and, you know, and kind of what we think of as like the overall feedback loop of democracy, right? I mean, Cornyn really did thread the needle in a way that he could go to Democrats and say, look, yeah, I know this isn't what you want, but look at all the things that it is. And he could go to Republicans and say, look at all the things that it isn't. Right. Yeah. You know, this should be okay with you Which guys. Which is classic. And everybody said, you know, basically put up their middle fingers and said, get out of here. Right. I mean, that's kind of been the response he's received for that. But but I mean, to me, the thing that's scary is, is that, you know, I mean, somebody says public opinion and somebody say, look, look, that's, it's overwhelming. I mean, these are pretty obvious. We went down the numbers like there's nothing he did here that was like so out of bounds. And if anything, you know, the vast majority of it was really in the Republican, you know, right. desired policies response around mental health. When you look at where that money was going, I mean, a lot of it was going to, you know, schools, mental health, yeah. that kind of stuff. And the reality is, is like, you know, if you're someone else out there thinking, OK, let's try to figure out how to compromise, just pick an issue. Is it worth it? Well, I'm curious, you know, I, I, and I I haven't seen anything. I don't know if you guys have. I'd be curious to see what Chris Murphy's polling did coming from the other direction. Mm-hmm. People said, you know, you didn't do anything, you know. Yeah. Right. Because yeah. they both came out and said, you know, this is the this is the narrow band in the middle. We no, can I get think done. that's a really Let's good question, and we should look we should look that up. I, would say, I, I am interested. I just, in there's that. a response to that. I mean, just as so I, as long as we're just going to guess things, go throw that. I would think that there's something here about this kind of issue set up that probably advantages someone like Murphy versus Corn, right? Which is just to say that you know it's kind of like immigration. It's like you can fight the fight. I mean, right. ultimately, the issue's still out there. He's still fighting the fight. He was still the leader on the Democrats. I'd even try to get anything through a Senate that nothing can get through. And so to kind of in that sense, it's like by not solving the issue, it's still out there to be solved. So I don't I don't see he's, that. He's also se. the Democrat who agreed to take a bunch of Democratic issues off the table and did it publicly enough that he was catching javelins for his members. I, yeah. I, I'm just it, curious about it. It would be it. interesting, you know, but I, but I think Murphy's number is good or bad. I mean, there's an underlying, there's something, you know, beneath this that is really just sort of not good about where we are because- you know, look, objectively, the bill that came out, I mean, and this, you know, other people will disagree. And look, the gun rights, many of the gun rights groups or the the gun safety groups rallied around the bill, which I think they needed to do for tactical reasons. I get it. Yeah. You know, personally, I'm not very impressed with what the bill does. It's pretty weak sauce. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, and, and I think there was a lot of, and I was frustrated with a lot of the media coverage. You know, if you could call this literally historic, right. I suppose, because- well, it's historic we, in the sense that the do-nothing Congress did something. Yeah, right, right. That, that a paralyzed <laughs> institution <laughs> managed to right. do you know, something. But, you know, this is gross. But, I mean, if I'm paralyzed and I manage to wiggle my toe, but that's all I can do, I'm still paralyzed. Um, so, on that note, what else? Um, I, I'm curious what else. I want to start with you, Ross. What, what else stuck out in the poll? We've covered a lot of ground. but I, You know, I just did a couple of things, just sort of general comments. You know, I'm, um, we talked before we started recording about the persistence of certain issues. And, you know, things fade pretty quickly. We saw it in the Ukraine numbers in this, you know, where people are very concerned about something while it's in the headlines and fresh and new. We've seen this with a number of shootings. We've seen it with police violence. We, you know, have seen it with court rulings, and we're seeing it in Ukraine. And at the same time, some issues remain persistent, you know. So inflation is the one that's rising right now, and inflation and the economy show up in people's listing of most important problems. And yet, uh, border security and immigration persist in there. They're, you know, combined, those are still the top items. So, you know, you you get some fluctuations like this, and I think in a in a, an election year, this is 
what can be misleading about a June poll when you're thinking about a November election is we don't know what we're going to be thinking about in October. Um, so, you know, that's one thing. And the other one, and I, you know, this has been a, a thing of mine for a long time. I'm always interested in polls and, and these polls have consistently done it that show the difference between sort of the logical underpinning of people's ideas about policy and the emotional underpinning of their feeling about partisanship. So you see something where they say, well, I like this and I like that and I like the other thing. And if you let them choose on a cafeteria plan, they basically, the voters in a poll write a bill the legislature would never pass. But when you ask them about a straight-up question, are you pro-choice or pro-life, they snap back into their emotional party positions. And just, you know, you know, for me, one of the most useful ways to analyze this stuff is to say, okay, are we talking with our brain or our heart here? And and they're talking with both. Yeah, I think there's a lot of conflict between the two that's evident in this poll that is also causing some of the noise. How about you, Josh? What else? You know, I, I, just to follow up on something, Ross, and I'll be quick then. You know, I mean, I think that's where, for me, that's where you really see some of these things that are kind of hard to square, right? I mean, I've kind of gone through, I think, some difficult results that I think are actually easier to square. And I think there's some easy results that are a little bit harder to square. And you look at, you know, for example, and this is where I think, you know, you ask Texans, well, you know, how's the Texas economy? Not good. You know, how's your own personal economic situation? Not good. How are gas prices affecting you? You know, a lot. How are cost of food, housing, all these things affecting you? It's all kind of negative. And then, you know, sort of see ambivalence towards Abbott, but then you're going to, you know, overall, but then you say, well, how's Abbott doing on the economy? And you'd think, and it's like, fine. You know, Republicans say, yeah, he's doing great. You know, Republican government tries to come. Well, how's he doing on inflation? Not so good. And it's sort of, you kind of say to yourself, and I think this is to your point, this is kind of how you square some of that where when you say like, eight, you know, one plus one plus one doesn't equal three. Right. And you're seeing some of that. And that's kind of this broken piece that kind of Jim is talking about. I think that you're talking about in terms of the partisanship that, you know. At the end of the day, I mean, one of the things that I think is really broken, we see this in our polling, you know, for a long time in the time series is sort of the extent to which evaluations of the economy are filtered through sort of these partisan lenses. Now, the, the valuations of the economy are so negative right now overall that it's almost it's breaking that a little bit, but it's not really breaking it in the way that I think we might expect to, where people might start to actually cast some blame even within their own party. Although I think Democrats are starting to with Biden a little bit, which adds to sort of the, the difficulty that Democrats are facing. You know, overall, I'll just throw one thing out there. We also asked a lot of questions uh, about January 6th, some questions that we repeated. The reason we, we wanted to repeat them was with the hearings going on. We wanted to see whether, you know, these sort of high profile hearings had any impact on people's views of what happened on January 6th, legitimate of Joe Biden's election, uh, and so on. And ultimately, the answer is almost none of those attitudes changed between February and when we recently, and when we polled, I should say, still time. I was still pretty much right on the heels of those hearings. But the one, one attitude that did show a pretty significant change was perceptions of future political violence in the U.S., which in February, 54% of Texans expected more political violence in the U.S. in the future. And in June, it was up to 64%, a 10% increase. Uh, that was a you know six percent increase among Democrats, eight percent increase among Independents, and a fourteen point increase among Republicans. So that's one that kind of keeping eyes out for, and I think we'll definitely be repeating on our way to the election to see what happens. Yeah, I mean, I you know I probably would have gone a little bit in that direction, but I think you know this has been a great conversation, and for me in terms of a lot of things that we've been talking about over the last several months, and and, and stretching back to when you were still on the clock, Ross. I mean, but. The way that you both just talked about that really crystallizes something. And Josh knows I've been in sort of, we've had some conversations with some colleagues at UT recently. But there are two things going on simultaneously right now that I think are just really, they're bad as independent things and they're really bad in conjunction. Mm -hmm. And that is on one hand, as Josh is pointing out, we're seeing a a real decay in what we've called democratic norms, you know, trust in the system, you know, uh, a sense of allegiance to the, you know, to the basic ground rules that we see in these responses on, on democracy and how well democracy is working in the country and in the state. We see in these embedded, like really deeply now entrenched attitudes about the 2020 election and January 6th. But on the other hand, we're also seeing something that I think is is helping to feed that to some degree uh, without letting some political leaders off the hook. But institutionally, you know, there's a lack of responsiveness in the system right now. I mean, both at the national level, you know, this conversation has touched on, uh, you know, the limitations of what, you know, Congress can do. And, you know, one of the most consistent results that we're also seeing is Democrats run Congress, Republicans run Congress, 
the houses are divided. Congress Congress's approval ratings haven't been over thirty percent. It's under I think, 10 in the, now, right? the yeah. entire time we've done this poll. It's the one thing you have going for you if you're John Cornyn in this poll is that you are not Congress. Right. Um you know, we look at the conversations we've been having over the last couple of sessions in the legislature, the contrast between twenty nineteen and twenty twenty one, we're having real problems with with what I would call a more representative Govern approach to governance in the state, and that lack of responsiveness in institutions at both the state and the federal level at the same time that we're having a real crisis in democratic institutions and fundamental democratic norms, you know, one or the other of those things, you know, needs to change, or we're going to continue like on a real path of decay here. You know, there's a, a way you can look at some of this data. You know, we asked about what question we've asked before about whether or not Joe Biden legitimately won the election. And about two thirds of Republicans say that he didn't. But if you look at the results of some of our- Say that he did or did not? Did not. Did not. Uh, But if you look at those results among Republicans, Republicans who say that Joe Biden legitimately won, about a third, about two thirds who say he didn't, right? Accuracy of U.S. elections. 87% of Republicans who say that Joe Biden legitimately won the election say that U.S. elections are accurate. They look like Democrats. 90% of Democrats, 87% of Republicans. Among Republicans who say that he didn't, 80% say U.S. election results are inaccurate. Uh, you know, we asked, was J- basically said, you know, did what happen on January 6th? Basically, was it basically people trying to overturn an election result amongst those who feel that uh, Joe Biden legitimately won the election? 60 percent of Republicans agree that it was it's, that it was basically an insurrection among those who think that he didn't win the election. Seventy six percent disagree with that characterization. Uh, and so, you know, I mean, the point is, I mean, you know, people have talked about the, the the perniciousness of this continued sort of idea that the 2020 election was was false or wrong or illegitimate or whatever. But this is the direct perniciousness, which is that you have about two thirds of Republicans holding just fundamentally anti-democratic attitudes at this point. Right. Seventy two percent of those Republicans who think he didn't win expect more political violence in the future compared to 52 percent of those yeah. Who didn't? So these these views do have consequences. This language does have consequences, and it's and it's trending in a bad direction. To- and Republicans chafe at the you know the accusation that they're developing into an anti democratic reactionary party, but you know the evidence is mounting pretty heavily. And it, and it's not just a lead. How would you it's behave differently happening- if you were? A- <laughs> Right. Yes, it, right. it's also happening. Ah, counterfactual. You know, it, you know, I mean, I think there's a lot of leadership, you know, to blame for that in the last 10 or 15 years. And look, to be fair, you know, Democrats have not governed particularly effectively at the national level while they've been had a lot of, you know, proximity to levers of power. Um, right. But, you know, I, that is another of the real underlying consistent themes in this poll. And it's and it's really troubling. So, uh, Ross, thanks for coming in, uh, being, you know, in your, in, while you're on your gap year. <laughs> you hey, know, I wore socks. I got to wear socks I, I once in a while, right? I thought in Europe right now. <laughs> <laughs> um, Josh, thanks for being here for all the work on the poll and, and the wise commentary. Uh, thanks to our production crew here in the audio studio in the Liberal Arts Development Studio at the University of Texas. Uh, all of the poll results, uh, Hundreds, if not thousands, of graphics from this poll uh, and the fifth, the 49 polls that preceded it uh, are available at the Texas Politics Project website. That's texaspolitics.utexas.edu. Thanks for listening, and we will be back next week with another Second Reading Podcast. The Second Reading Podcast is a production of the Texas Politics Project at the University of Texas at Austin. 